Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. Good morning. Thank you, Mike. It is, um, it's so good to be with you guys. I'm really thrilled to be here. And I love your church. What a wonderful spirit. My good friend Jeff Ferguson is here. Thank you so much for coming, my friend. I'm thrilled that he's here. And I just love your community already. Y'all are making me feel really at home in, in, in an unusual way. Uh, we had a great time hanging out last night. I just already love the spirit of what you're doing. And it's very special for me to be here. So thank you for receiving me so graciously. Um, yeah, I just moved from Nashville, Tennessee to Oklahoma City, and we're getting ready to start service there in two weeks. And I am planning a church in the year of our Lord, 2019. I don't know what's wrong with me. That's, I, I did it once before. I didn't know if I had another one of those in me. Um, I have a birthday coming up next week, and um, I don't know. I just, it, I'm, I've been reflecting a lot. It's, it's an interesting time. I just think it's an interesting moment. Isn't that, a, which is a, such an understated statement, isn't it? It's an interesting moment. Um, I thought there's almost nothing I can say about culture, almost nothing I can say about the moment that we're in that would not be controversial in some way. Um, but here's the one thing in which I feel like I can get a complete consensus. There seems to be roughly 100% agreement here. I think most among most people, they might agree for different reasons, but I think most everybody will agree with this. This is a very weird time. Can we at least get a consensus on that? You might think it's weird for different reasons, but it's a very weird time. And maybe everybody thinks their time is weird, but I, I do think it's a uniquely weird time. And I think it's, um, it's a uniquely polarized and polarizing time. Um, I feel like we're I don't know. I just think the the moment we're in is especially divided, and it raises a lot of really particular questions and issues, I think, for us as the church, as people of faith, as people of God, to just know how to be faithful, Um, to know uh, know when to speak and when to be silent, to know uh, what pitches to swing at and what pitches not to swing at. I will say, and this is actually takes some discipline for me, but I'm definitely at a place in my life where I do not want to swing at every pitch for sure. But I also think there are some pitches that are worth swinging at. So um, how to discern when we're supposed to do that, when God is nudging us to do that, how to discern, which raises all kinds of questions, how to discern the voice of God in general. Because man, um, how do any of us discern that voice? You know, um, when God speaks to me in that deeply interior way, and see, I am, you have to understand, um, y'all don't know a lot about me necessarily, so maybe I should give some context. I always self-refer as a hillbilly Pentecostal, so I grew up in kind of sweat and sawdust, and I love where I came from. Um, Very much an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, and uh, before the end of the day, you'll all be speaking in tongues and rolling around on the floor, and (laughs) Snakes will be handled and glory will fall and you'll be fine. It will be fine. You'll be fine. But uh, no, I love where I come from uh, for all the, uh, the weirdness sometimes. I love it. And um, one of the things I got from my tradition was this, this very dynamic emphasis on the Holy Spirit and how the Spirit speaks to us. And, um, and I do believe that the Holy Spirit speaks. But I know this, 
you know, especially in terms of the way the Spirit speaks in that interior way, however God speaks to me comes within my own vernacular and language and sounds a lot like me. And so how do I know? Because, you know, I have, I have strong feelings about a lot of stuff. Um, I mean, I'm in, I'm in Houston Rockets territory, so I, I will be guarded because I actually really like the Rockets. But even though I just moved to Oklahoma City, I really do have strong feelings about the Thunder. Like, I love the Thunder. It's like I've, I have strong convictions about basketball. I have strong feelings about hot dogs. I have strong feelings. There is, there is almost no, there is no topic we could talk about on which I do not have a strong feeling. Because I'm an Enneagram 7, and that is the kind, for those of you who are into that sort of dark sorcery, and um, I, I'm, I'm a passionate person. So, like, I have, I have feelings about virtually everything. So it's, um, it's hard to distinguish. It's hard to discern. And, and, and then um, part of what I think makes it uniquely hard to discern, and I don't, even, I don't have a solution for this, is that we're in a moment right now too to where like we don't even have there there's not even a a, a particular outlet somewhere where, in terms of news where we could all say well we we trust this one voice there it's not like you know back in the day every there was a time in which people would say well if it's on 60 minutes well you well they would never lie to us on 60 minutes but now if I give you a statistic and you don't like the statistic, then any given person will say, well, like, who gave you that statistic? Well, I, it was from this study. Well, who are those people? Well, it's from this university. Oh, that university, this blah, blah, blah. You hear what I'm saying? Because everybody kind of picks and chooses their own facts, picks and chooses their own data. Man, what a uniquely complicated time. So I'm not going to be able to solve any of that sociologically. But what I do want to do is to take you to a text that I think is relevant for the moment and has been helpful to me. A few months ago, I felt like the Lord spoke to me about this. And I did, in full disclosure, talk to your pastor to just say, we were just talking about this a bit, just in terms of like, we just, we're both talking as faith leaders and me starting this new thing, just grappling out loud with what does it look like to try to be faithful in the moment that we've been given, as weird as it is. So with all that, that in view, 2 Kings chapter 6 is where we're going to go to an Elisha story that I think is, is somehow poignant. Elisha, of course, is one of those great Old Testament prophets. I do decidedly do not claim to be a prophet. I've been around some people in my life that I think really are prophetic people, um, Prophets, as a rule, I think, tend to, to come from the margins of things. They come from the outskirts. They don't come from the mainstream. Um, we, we need that critique that comes from the outside. I tend to think that's always where God is most profoundly at work is on the outside. So when I'm struggling to discern where the voice is, that's normally where I think, okay, like I, I, need, I, need, I need to go outside you know, Hebrews talks about Jesus himself as the one who's, who was crucified outside the gate. There's something to that. Outside the gate, out there, there, there's, there's a voice outside that I think we need to hear. So while I don't claim to be a prophet, again, I've been around some, some people who I think are very prophetic, and I think there's a particular wisdom to the prophets. Because, you know, one of the things I love about the prophets right now, because I think 
that we are in a weird time, somehow the prophets just are more illumined to me right now because the prophets, you know, all these stories are weird. And they're weird stories, and we're in a weird moment, and it just works out in that way, I think. So hope this will be helpful. But I want to pray for us one more time, if you don't mind, before we get into the text. Uh, God, I'm just deeply grateful for the gift of your people to be gathered in your presence. And I do sense you here this morning. There's, uh, we thank you for the gift of each other. We're thankful for the gift of community and laughter and light and people who care for each other and take care of each other. Uh, we're thankful, God, just for a people here who care about issues of justice and mercy, people who are striving to be your people in the world. So God, I just pray for your grace this morning, knowing that this is at minimum a really particular moment, kind of a strange moment, and we just, we just really need your help. We, we know that there's so much that we don't know, and we know that there's so much that we don't understand, and there are so many things uh, in this time of social media and 24-hour news cycle and constant information. God, there's just so much coming into our brains all the time. It's more than we can take in, and we need your help. We need your help sorting it. We need your wisdom to know um, what, to, what to do with it, what to speak to and what not to speak to. We need your wisdom to know when to be silent. We need to be silent. And uh, God, I just pray for your grace this morning, uh, especially through this text, through this word, to just help us to discern and help us to listen. I pray that you would tailor this in a very personal way. So God, not just in the big picture sense for us as a community, that really matters. But God, in, in terms of how we engage our family and our friends and the people around us, God, we need your grace. So we just pray today that you would help us to be able to listen well and you would speak to us by your spirit. Your sons and your daughters are listening. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, we pray. And everybody said, amen. We'll go right to the text. I don't think it takes a lot of set up. The text doesn't give us a lot of set up. There's a war between the king of Aram and the Israelites, and Second Kings chapter 6, beginning with verse 8. Once when the king of Aram was at war with Israel, he took counsel with his officers, and he said, at such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, take care not to pass this place because the Arameans are going down there. The king of Israel sent word to the place of which the man of God spoke. More than once or twice, he warned such a place so that it was on the alert. So you see what's happening is that, and this happens more than once, is that whenever the king of Aram makes a plan, God is speaking to Elisha the prophet, and uh, so he's kind of getting this divine download. He, he sees it. And he goes back and he's able to warn the Israelites. So they're always able to outmaneuver the king of Aram. Verse 11, the mind of the king of Aram was greatly perturbed because of this. He called his officers and he said to them, now tell me who among us sides with the king of Israel. He thinks he has a leak. <laughs> we have a leaker. Somebody's been going to the media. So, who, who here, we've got to lock this thing down. Surely 
somebody in my camp has been going out and telling the Israelites something. He's just sure that he has a traitor. But then one of his officers said, no one, my Lord King, it is Elisha, the prophet in Israel, who tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. And he said, go and find where he is. I will send and seize him. And he was told he is in Dothan. So he sent horses and chariots there and a great army. They came by night and they surrounded the city. So the king of Aram has sent now this great army to come and get Elisha because he knows that God is speaking to Elisha, spoiling his plans. He's got to take out the prophet. So verse 15, when an attendant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. They were surrounded. And I'm wondering this morning, even within this particular moment in our context, while the story might feel a little bit more dramatic than this might feel like in your life, I'm wondering if you can identify at all with what it feels like to be surrounded. Because I've had some moments lately, at least personally, where I have felt surrounded. That moment where you really don't have a direction to move, whether you go to the right or to the left, it feels like there are opponents on every side where you feel hemmed in, where there are no solutions. I mean, this is a very real place. It's a very real thing that, that when you look out in all directions, there is just, there is no escape. There is no escape. It's a uniquely hopeless place when you look out and you feel surrounded and you feel like you don't have a way out. Some of us know exactly what that feels like, to feel like there is no, there is no way out of the moment that we're in, that we're, that we're hemmed in. There's no solution. There's no escape. Um, there's no reasoning out of it. Uh, there, there's just no, there, there are no resources. You can't buy your way out of it. You can't talk your way out of it. You can't think your way out of it. You're just completely stuck, utterly surrounded. There is no moving from where you are. And this is Elisha's attendant. This is his servant, who's the one who first discovers this before the the prophet. And when he looks out and he sees this, when he sees that he's surrounded, he asks the question that I feel like so many people are asking right now. You know, I don't... um, the last couple of years, I've just been sort of writing and speaking full time, which is a way of saying I don't precisely have a job. And part of what that means, well, I'd never exactly aspired to pastor pastors, is that I feel like a lot of pastors and church leaders come to me. And I really love and cherish that because I think maybe because I haven't been in the game in that way for a little while, it's like, uh, I don't know. Maybe it makes me seem more trustworthy. And I love being a vault for leaders uh, if they need to just talk about stuff. I, I love being that safe person and safe space. And one of the things that I have feel like I, I found as much from pastors and church leaders, other people too, but as much from faith leaders as anybody else, I think precisely because 
this is such a polarized and polarizing time. And precisely because any step in any direction is going to get you crucified, it feels like. And precisely because it feels like the armies have surrounded and there's, there just, there's no room to move. I feel like even pastors and church leaders in all directions right now are always asking this question. I think a lot of us are asking this question in this time. The servant comes out and says to Elisha, alas, master, what shall we do? What are we going to do with this? And it's a real question. What are we going to do when we're surrounded? Because none of the natural options, none of the logical options, none of the rational options necessarily make sense. We're in a moment in which I feel like oftentimes we are, we are given choices that are false choices, that are bad choices. You know, um, I didn't even intend to go this direction. I hope this is helpful. I hope this is inspired in some way. But man, I just feel like some, so many times people ask me questions where, um, and I'm, I'm not comparing myself to Jesus here, but like, you know, when the scribes and Pharisees try to back Jesus in a corner about things and, you know, that whole like, well, is it this or this? And so often I, I'm just getting to a place to where I want to reject the premise of a lot of those questions. Like, oh, I don't, that's not this or this. I love what Jesus does so often. Just, instead of answering their questions, he'll ask a better question. But so often I feel like, you know, this is, the, the, the questions aren't even good questions. There's just, we're, we're, we, there's this way of being backed into a corner. And it's a real question. What are, what are we going to do, especially when we feel surrounded. What are we going to do with this? And I love what Elisha says, verse 16. Do not be afraid. And he says something that on the surface of things sounds really ridiculous. He says to his servant, for there are more with us than there are with them. Now, this is an interesting statement because we already talked a little bit about facts and data. On one level, at least on, a, um, on kind of a superficial level, what Elisha is saying here is not precisely true. And I, I can't imagine what the attendant, must, his servant here, must be feeling because, okay, so there is, Elisha, there is you and there's me, and we're surrounded by an army, and yet you're telling me there are more of us than there are of them? Actually not, because I'm looking outside right now, and I'm seeing this army with my own eyes, like I can see it. Like it's, this, this is not fake news. Like I can, I can see it with my own eyes. Like I know what I'm looking at. I know it. I see this with my own eyes. What do you mean there are more of us than there are of them? He's terribly afraid. But in verse 17, Elisha prayed for him. And I love this prayer. Oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the servant and he saw that the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Wow, this is a different way of seeing. 
this is a different perspective. And it's interesting, too, because even though Elisha said there are more of us than there are of them, note that he did not say more people. (laughs) He didn't say there are more people, more of us. More of us here apparently means something like angels and horses and chariots. And note what it does not mean here is that God has a bigger military. I love that detail about the story. There's actually no, there's no mention of proper weapons here. It's, there are chariots of fire. Paul will write about in the New Testament that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Or in Ephesians, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We don't need earthly weapons for the war we're in. What we do need is our eyes to be open to see the world from a different perspective, from a different point of view, for God to open us up. That's what I'm praying for these days because I, I really feel like so often what we need so much is not so, it's not so much for God to do a new miracle, but for God to open up our eyes, to be able to see the world as it already is from God's perspective, from a different point of view. Now that's tricky because I don't automatically go to that place. Prayer takes me to this place. Scripture will take me to this place. But to, I, I don't open up Facebook and see this. Right? I don't, I don't read the news and see this is a different point of view. There are more of us than there are of them. That in a time where there's so much violence and noise and chaos and so many things, systems seem to be falling apart. And there just seems to be so much, again, just, just noise and clutter. And it seems that there are more that are for war and more who want violence than those who want peacemaking. It doesn't seem like a time in which peacemakers are blessed. It seems like a time in which peacemakers se- peacemaking seems stupid and lame. It doesn't feel like a time in which the meek are going to inherit the earth. It feels like, you know, blessed are they who, I don't know, like it, it's just the, who, that, that the, more, the more mighty you are, the stronger you are, the more heat that you're packing, the more force that you exert, the more like, that, like the, the, the strongest are going to survive. It feels like that kind of time. But this is once again a very different point of view where God opens the eyes of the servant to, to see chariots of fire, to see that this is not, to to see the world from a different perspective. I think that's the kind of perspective that we need in this moment, that I need in this moment, that keeps us from losing heart, that that allows us to see that even when it seems like the prince of peace is not winning, when it feels like good and light is not winning, when it feels like uh, forces of darkness and death and chaos are prevailing, that there is this different way of looking at the world that we're able to access and we're able to see. But I want to read on a little further. So then, verse 18, when the Arameans came down and against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and he said, strike this people, please, with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked. And Elisha said to them, this is not the way and this is not the city Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. So God strikes them blind. Everybody's confused. Elisha leads them away. Verse 20. 
as soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they may see. The Lord opened their eyes, and they saw that they were inside Samaria. Now, so, so now Elijah has led them away, so they're no longer in danger. The people are confused. Now the king of Israel sees them, and he says to Elisha, Father, shall I kill them? And I love that he asked this question twice in the text because you can feel like the, the, the intensity here. Father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Like he's eager here. Like, can I kill them? I mean, really, can I kill them? Like he's ready to go. We, we have them on the run now. Why would we not take this opportunity to eradicate our enemies? And listen to what Elisha says, verse 22. He answered, no. Did you capture with your sword and your bow those whom you want to kill? Now, here's where it gets real crazy. Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and let them go to their master. The king is saying, can't we kill them? Elisha says, oh, no, 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 don't kill them. Feed them. And verse 23, so he prepared for them a great feast. After they ate and drank, he sent them on their way, and they went to their master, and the Arameans no longer came raiding into the land of Israel. And that was that. Great story, right? So here's, here's where I really want to land these last few minutes that we have. I know that we've got plenty of texts in the Old Testament where the people of God go to war and where the Israelites wipe people out. But I also would contend that if you know what you're reading in the Old Testament, the story was always moving towards mercy, always was. It's always move, moving towards the outside and towards the outsiders. And I feel like what we get in this particular Elisha story is the prophet and prophetic ministry and prophetic work at its purest. This is what it's about. This is what it's always been about. It's what it was for Elisha. It's what it was for us now, what it's supposed to be like for us now. And I think it's so instructive for us in the moment that we're in. Elisha is Israel's prophet. So he speaks on behalf of the people of God. He's their spokesperson, ostensibly. And yet, while there is a way that he kind of represents Israel, more so, he, he speaks for God. He represents God. The, Israel is, the, these are his people. He speaks to his people. But he speaks on God's behalf. And part of what I think is so astonishing about this text is that what we really see happening here is that while Elisha is a product of his own people and while he speaks to his own people, because he serves the God who is the creator and father over all, then ultimately what the prophet does is actually stands in between. He stands in that in-between space. He stands in between life and death here. He, he, he stands in between war and peace. If, if, if there is not a prophet like Elisha, then this story ends in destruction. 
But because there's a prophet who steps up, in the, because there's a prophet here who can't be bought off, because there's a prophet who can't be lured by the rich and powerful. See, the problem in our time is that a lot of so-called or would-be prophets, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-S, a lot of so-called prophets are lured by prophets, P-R-O-F-I-T-S, and, and you can buy the prophets off. You, you can, you, if you give the prophet a seat at the table of power, they will say whatever you want them to say. Prophets can be bought off into partisan causes. That's a real, real problem. Because actual prophets always stand in this awkward in-between place. Because even if they represent the people of God, they actually stand for the world. It's not just about us. It's not just about our tribe. Let me, let me put it like this. I'm, I'm going to give you a very fast, very fast history of the whole Bible. How do you like that? Like, like here's where the story starts. Here, this, this is the premise of the entire, the entire story hangs on this one hook that in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abraham. Y'all are aware of Abraham, probably, those of you in the Sunday school. Father Abraham. He had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them. So are you. Right arm, left arm, <laughs> nod your head. Y'all know about Father Abraham in Houston, surely? Um, Father Abraham, right? And what's, what is the deal with Father Abraham and the many sons? God calls one man named Abraham. He says, I am going to make you great. I'm going to give you this great nation. I'm going to give you many sons. I am going to give you many daughters. I'm going to give you this great family. I'm going to give you this great people. But what's the point? And this is, I'm not just, I'm not reading into this here. This, this was in the story from the very beginning. God tells Abraham, I'm going to give you all these daughters and sons. I'm going to make your family great. I'm going to turn you into a great nation so that through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That was the promise from the very beginning. Abraham, through you, ultimately, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's where the story was always going. Now, of course, for those of us who are Christians, we believe that how that is fulfilled, at least part of how that's fulfilled, there are other ways it was straining towards fulfillment throughout the Old Testament, is, of course, through Jesus. Jesus is the light that comes through the line of Abraham to the Gentiles. But like, like really, but really think this all the way through. If the idea was that God calls Abraham, that God raises up Israel so that through Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's not my word. Like that, that's the word in Genesis, all the families of the earth. Like think through the implications of that for just a minute. I'm not, I don't want to seem arrogant here and seem like I'm cutting through um, a centuries old theological conflict in like two or three minutes of a sermon. But, but in my mind at least, and Pastor Mike, feel free to rebuke me, correct me uh, next week, <laughs> today if you really need to. But like I, this is, but this at least for me, I feel like is um, something that becomes unnecessarily complicated for people. Like when I, I went to a, 
Baptist college, and I remember like when I was first getting into theology, and the very first thing you start to wrestle with when you uh, start to care about theology stuff and you're like 19 is, you know, we're staying up late at night, and everybody's always talking about predestination. It's all about predestination versus free will, and it's all about election. And therefore, it's all about who's in and who's out. Who are the elect? Who are the non-elect? Who are the who are the truly chosen? And and how do we know? And like, there's so much theological argument around these things. And I just feel like the whole conversation, as it is often framed, is kind of ridiculous. Because here's the thing: predestination, which is a scripture word, Paul uses it. Or election, which is a word that we really do use to talk about Abraham all the way back there in Genesis. It was never about salvation. Hear me here. It was never about salvation. It was never about God chooses some to be saved and some to be damned. Election was never about salvation. It was about vocation. It was about vocation. God chooses Abraham and the line of Abraham to be a light to the nation so that through you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. It wasn't about salvation. It was about vocation. So, so what's the point? Anything good that God ever did for Israel ultimately was for the sake of the world. Anything good that God ever does for the sake of the church, anything good that God, good that God ever does for the church is for the sake of the world. Anything good that God ever does for us is for the sake of them. Try this on for size. Anything good that God ever does for his friends ultimately is for the sake of God's enemies. That was always true. That was always where the story was going. Always. And it's what makes this Elisha story so beautiful. Is that because the prophet is faithful to hear God here. Yes, it will mean peace for the people of God. But it also means the, quote, enemies of God, instead of bloodshed, are going to be fed, served, cared for, and they're going to experience peace. It was as much for them as it was for God's people. Do you hear what I'm saying? Because that's what prophets do. That's what prophetic voices do. Man, I promise I'm about to land the plane. But this, that idea just still just fries every circuit in my brain because I still think there are so many people who are just convinced that there are folks that need to be left out, and they just don't. That's not how it works. Anything good God has ever done for any of us, it was never like God has some people, and he says, you are my pets, and I love you, and I'm going to rub your belly, and you're awesome, but yet before time, uh, nope that one's going down. Don't like him. That was never the idea. The, the movement was always outward. See, that's the thing. Um, I'm getting theological on y'all for a second. My friend Chris Green has this wonderful phrase that God chooses the elect for the sake of the non-elect. I love that so much. The chosen for the sake of the unchosen. That's always where the story was going. Uh, even, even a story like Jacob and Esau, I always wrestle a little bit with Jacob because on the one hand, like, I like that God blesses Jacob, even though Jacob's a jerk, because I'm a jerk, and it's cool that God will still bless me, even though I'm a jerk. But the flip side of that is anybody who ever reads that, you can't help 
right? But feel bad for Esau. It's like, dude, God was hung, hungry one time and makes a bad decision. Now you get left out of the blessing forever. But see, that's what's so wonderful about the story. Like Esau is left, left out there. But that's not where the story's going. Like where this thing is going in Jesus, like ultimately Esau's not left out either. Like nobody's left out. That's why ultimately Jesus is crucified outside the gate. The whole point is that ultimately the outsiders will be able to come in. That's where the story was always going. So, um, so, so here's, a, here's a, real, um, uh, a real quick, fast, the, the kind of quick and dirty guide as to how to tell a, 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 whether or not a person's a prophet in the age of self-proclaimed prophets and all that. I'm pretty sure somebody's not a prophet if they're stirring up my sense of us versus them. I'm pretty sure that's not a prophet. If you're trying to hit all my buttons to get me inflamed, to tell me that I'm right and they're so wrong and aren't they so bad, aren't you just like, I'm pretty sure that I don't need a prophet to do that. I don't think that's the work of prophets. What prophets do, I think, are to melt our hearts in such a way is to be able to see the image of God in people who are not like us. That's what prophets do. Prophets force us to see the humanity in the eyes of our enemies. That's what a prophet will do. But the very moment, like, I'm just convinced of that, that whenever somebody's trying to hit my buttons and trying to tell me that I'm right and they're so wrong and to stir me back up into that kind of tribalistic us versus them, white hats and black hats kind of mentality, I'm like, ah, pretty sure you don't speak for God. Because I, I don't think I need a prophet for that. I don't think I need a preacher for that. I think we have more, en- more than enough of those folks going out there in the world. That, those aren't prophets. Those are commentators. We have plenty of commentators. But I think we, but we do need more prophets. And I'm, man, I'm, I'm, I, I want to use this word as broadly as I possibly can. Because you know what Acts talks about? Where's how the time is coming where the Holy Spirit will be poured out on all flesh. Now, now I am going to sound like a Pentecostal. And your sons and your daughters will prophesy. That's the thing that's so beautiful, is that because now the gift of the Spirit is poured out to the whole church. The Spirit is given to the whole church. Pentecost is the birthday of the whole church, is that all of God's sons and daughters have the power to prophesy. Now, does that mean, because this is how people are, some people are going to hear that, oh, so, like, so we can like tell each other's fortunes or something? No, but that's never what that meant, right? Like at, at the end of the day, I'm, look, I've had people, and because I, I believe in all the things, I've had people in my life who I feel like are very gifted, who have words for me of, 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 of knowledge that have been powerful. But at the end of the day, to prophesy is to speak, is to proclaim God's truth, to speak from God's perspective. That's, that's the kind of perspective we got in Second Kings, that come up here, that kind of aerial perspective, seeing the world from a different point of view. We're all able to do that. See, that's, that's one of the challenges for me right now because, like, I, do, I, I promise, I, I, I said I was done like 10 minutes ago. Thank you for indulging me. I, I really, I, I, I'm, I'm going to pull the plug on myself, I promise. But, like, in this, in this digital age, I do all the social media things. But sometimes, and I'm not trying to be weird about it, but sometimes I really do have to unplug both for my own sanity and also because, like, I just realized I, I don't have good things to say all the time. I just don't. I get reactive and I respond too much. Sometimes I really have to go off the grid to just clear my head and clear my heart 
before I'm able to go out and engage constructively again. Like no one could possibly can, can hear all those voices all the time and have something to say worth saying, you know? I just think we're in a time where the world desperately needs more sons and daughters to prophesy, to speak God's truth, to speak that, that kind of truth that transcends and that, that, build, that builds bridges where bridges can be built. Now, that doesn't mean that um, uh, building, even when you're trying to build bridges and you're trying to make peace, that doesn't mean that sometimes that won't entail conflict. I, I know this all too well, you know, but even there, I, I think we have to exercise such such discernment, you know, to, to know the voice of the Holy Spirit in that way. Because I think, I don't know, I just think there's a, there's a tenderness to how God speaks. There's a tenderness to how God speaks to where even if you have to say something hard, uh, there's a grace that's to, that's to it and there's a graciousness that's to it that just, that just sounds different. Um, especially in a time when I feel like in the world where everything right now feels so, everybody's so caustic and everything feels so angry and so charged. There's a tenderness to the sound of the Holy Spirit that I want to be able to find. And especially when I know I don't have that, then I really know I don't like, like, please keep me away from the Twitter when, when, I am not in, when I'm not in a good place in that regard. Because, you know, I'll just, I'll just start saying things. My, uh, and even it's funny because like even if I, it, it doesn't matter even if I try even trying to say good things right. Um, I remember I heard this phrase. Somebody uh, again growing up in Pentecostal church. I just remember once somebody saying to a preacher, "Preacher Day, you 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 just took that sword of the Lord and you were just swinging that every which way." And I I think about that sometimes. I'm like I'm just swinging that every which way, like I'm just not all. That's not always constructive, you know. There's a um, now that I'm way over time, um, th- th- my, this is my last footnote. Because the thing you have to keep in mind is that the, the wrong spirit can say the right thing. Like you can quote chapter and verse. My, my great example of this is in the book of Acts when there's a, this girl who's falling around Paul and Silas who's possessed by a spirit. And wherever they go, she's saying, behold, she's crying out with a loud voice, these men are servants of the Most High God, and she's saying it over and over again. It's so interesting because what she's saying is true. Like, theologically, she's right. They are servants of the Most High God. People should listen to them. Like, there's nothing wrong with what, they're, what she's saying. And yet, Paul turns around and casts the evil spirit out of her because what she's actually doing is just distracting. That's so helpful for me because I found the, the wrong spirit can say the right thing. You can cite chapter and verse, and still be wrong. <laughs> the spirit can still be wrong. I, I know because I have done it. I have wielded the Bible as a weapon against people, and the spirit of it was not right. Stand with me, please. I've, I did not mean, Mike told me to take my time, but I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to do this. These combined service, I don't know when I'll get back. I'm about to plant a church. Thanks for indulging me. I, I just want to pray over you, and we'll keep this part really simple. I just, um, I would just ask you to join me this morning and, um, and just open our hearts today. For one, I think it, it does take a lot of grace to, to stay tender, to keep our hearts open to people who are not like us. So interesting, right? Because uh, 
what I found, at least in my own life, is that um, at any given point in my life, there's always been somebody or some group of people where I didn't, who I didn't think I had to love. But see, it's changed. When I was growing up, it was one kind of people I didn't think I had to love. They're, they're the bad guys. And then I got older, and I changed, and my theology changed, and it was a different kind of people that I felt like I didn't have to love. Man, that's the thing that's so challenging about Jesus. He just doesn't let you get by with not loving anybody. And uh, sometimes in my own heart now, I feel like I can sort of justify, like, well, I'm just, I'm only mad at the, at the Pharisees. Well, Jesus doesn't let me hate the Pharisees either. Imagine that. He died for them too. Like there's nobody I get to demonize. There's nobody I get to write off. So in the spirit of that, let's pray. God, I just pray for the grace this morning because we do live in a complicated time where we need your grace and we need your perspective and we need your love. And I would simply ask this morning as we get ready to come to your table where we are reminded again, that we all need your grace. And, and coming to the table with open hands and open hearts is so important because it, it shapes our posture to the world. We, we, rem, we remember this morning that we are frail. We remember this morning that we are in need. And so, God, I just pray that instead of a posture of defense um, or offense, for that matter, God, we just want to lay all of our weapons down this morning and we want to lay down pride and ego and arrogance of every kind. And we just ask you again, God, that you would baptize us with your love, that you would fill us with your kindness, your meekness. You would make us gentle like you, King Jesus, that you would make us tender like you, so many things that are happening in the world and so much noise, our hearts get so brittle and hard. Make our hearts tender again and keep them tender. Keep our hearts open. And God, especially this morning, for the people who are kind of an other to us, for the people that um, we're more inclined to want to defeat than to feed or to serve or to love, God, give us the grace this morning again to, to see them the way that you see them. I pray that this community in particular, for this church, for this particular people in this place, to be such a great witness for your kingdom in that way. There will be a sweetness about this place and about these people that will testify to the goodness of our king. pray specifically as we come to the table this morning that you would give us bread for the journey. That you would give us the food, the strength that we need to be your people, that we would be your body that's broken and blessed and distributed on your behalf, that we would be the drink offering that's poured out for the sake of the world. We ask it in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.